This story starts a couple hundred years ago, back when North America was evolving from mostly rural to become more urban. America not so long ago was a continent of wilderness and open space. In colonial times, Boston was the biggest city in America. Around 1750, it lost that title to Philadelphia. And 30 years later, just after American independence, New York City moved into the top spot. And it has been there ever since. When it took that title, New York was home to a whopping 30,000 people. That's it. But a century later, around 1880, it was already at 1 million. The growth rate was astronomical. Now America is a land of mighty cities, and much of our space has been transformed into urban density. All those people needed housing, drinking water, sanitation, and transportation. It is of the utmost importance for us to remember that throughout most of the history of civilization, man has been dependent upon animals for transportation. In the case of New York in 1880, those animals were horses. Some people rode horses, some drove a cart that was pulled by horses, they even invented horse cars. Those were trolleys that rode on rails but were pulled by horses too. The rails reduced friction, so two horses could pull a trolley holding 20 people. It was a masterpiece of efficiency. But after four hours of pulling passengers around Manhattan, those two horses would be pretty tired. So they'd have to be relieved, and two fresh animals had to be put in their place. So the city had to house, feed, and care for eight horses per trolley. And then you add in the police horses, the delivery horses, the privately owned horses, You've got a city with more than 150,000 of those animals working the streets. Have you ever walked behind a horse? Or maybe you've seen a bunch of them in a parade? If you have, then you will know a very basic fact about horses. They poop. They poop a lot. How much? I'm glad you asked. Roughly 28 pounds of manure per animal per day, give or take. So multiply that number by the number of horses in the city of New York, and you're basically looking at a city that is ankle deep in brown stuff. I crunched the numbers. It's more than 750,000 tons every year falling on the roads of New York. Now when it rained, the roads turned into a swamp of oozing filth. And when it was hot and dry, it was almost worse. Dust storms of feces blowing through the streets, going up your nose, filling your eyes. Oh, and the flies. Can you imagine the flies? Now let's get back to that explosive growth rate that I mentioned earlier. New York had gone from 30,000 people to a million in 100 years. The number of horses was growing at the same rate. And with that, the volume of feces. The city leaders needed a plan to save the city. Private companies were allowed to harvest the manure and sell it as fertilizer to nearby farms. But honestly, there were only so many farms within a distance where the cost of distribution made sense. So you had way more supply and not enough demand, so those fertilizer distribution companies couldn't make enough money and they ended up folding. That didn't work. But then a partial solution. The city passed a law that all horses had to be kept in a stable at night and not just left on the street. The idea was that their nighttime droppings would have to be looked after by the animal's owner instead of falling on the street, and that would probably solve the problem. 
Yeah, it helped. A bit. But it didn't help enough. The piles continued to grow. In 1898, the world's first international urban planning conference was held right in New York. Representatives from the largest cities across North America and Europe gathered for this event. You had London, Berlin, Chicago, Montreal. They all sent representatives. The agenda included discussions on crime, taxation, and infrastructure. But the marquee topic that everyone was really there to solve was the topic of horse manure. The delegates from London, England predicted that within 50 years, the piles of dung in their city would be nine feet deep. That's more than a horse deep. Sort of hard to picture how the horse poops when it's already in poop above its head. New York's planning department said their piles would reach third floor windows in just 30 years. Again, I find myself wondering how they thought this scenario would play out, but the numbers speak for themselves. The greatest minds of the world's greatest cities discussed this problem, but they couldn't come up with a plan to save their citizens from being buried alive. Three days into what was supposed to be a 10-day conference, they all gave up and went home. There was no point discussing any of the other topics because if they couldn't deal with the manure, none of those other things were going to matter. In 1920, New York's horse population reached one million. The manure on Fifth Avenue was waist deep. Swarms of flies triggered an outbreak of typhoid fever. Hundreds of thousands of people died. People fled the island of Manhattan to escape the plague. Within three years, the city was abandoned. And to this day, no one goes there. Oh wait, that's not what happened at all. But why didn't it happen? Well, because something happened to change the city's trajectory. In 1903, five years after that planning conference ended without a solution, Henry Ford sold his first automobile. Cars at that time were noisy, unreliable, and not particularly fast. But for all the carbon dioxide they pump into the atmosphere every year, there is one way in which cars are magnificent for the environment. They do not drop 28 pounds of manure on the street every day. And that is a blessing. The transition was quick. By 1912, cars outnumbered horses in New York City. Five years after that, the last horse-drawn trolley was taken out of service, and the streets of New York have been more or less free of manure ever since. The motorization of our economy. So new, so powerful, so revolutionary is this force that we have hardly been able to appraise its influence. Moreover, its impact has struck every American community. Imagine that. The most dire crisis facing America's largest and fastest-growing city didn't actually need a solution. Because the underlying assumption that the number of horses would continue to increase at the same rate as the population was wrong. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. This series tells some of the best stories from the history of science and looks for enduring lessons within them. Along the way, we get some help from vintage 1950s newsreels. Progress is being made and research is leading the way. 
and from Dr. Wayne Lott, a founder of Symar, a researcher working on his own medical breakthrough, a paradigm shift in the way we view diabetes. The biological sciences continue to take their place in the ongoing pattern of achievement by advancing man's understanding of life itself. The city planners of New York were unable to find a solution to their manure problem, but ultimately they were bailed out because one of their underlying assumptions, the paradigm they were invested in, was wrong. But here's an even scarier scenario. Your assumptions might be right, and your solution might work for a while, but if there's a piece of the puzzle out of place, something you haven't realized needs to be taken into account, the whole house of cards can come crashing down, even though on the surface everything looked just fine a few moments ago. How? I'll show you. This is Episode 9, Square One. In London, England in the 1890s, while their city planners were trying to find a solution to the aforementioned horse manure problem, Health officials were worried about something else, a horrible, crippling disease that was spreading through the population. It was a mysterious illness with horrible consequences that struck instantly. One day, you'd wake up with a headache. An hour later, you were paralyzed. Maybe just one leg, maybe your arms. Some victims lost the ability to breathe. It was horrifying. The city was just 40 years removed from a cholera outbreak, an epidemic that killed 52,000 people in the country. The hero of that story was a doctor named John Snow. He's the one that figured out the illness was carried by bad water. In a famous act, he removed the handle from a public water pump on Broad Street. That prevented people from drawing water from a well that Snow believed was contaminated. And he was right. And as soon as people started getting water from safe sources, things got better. The people of London decided to use the same approach for this new paralytic disease. They cleaned up the public sewers and improved the way they handled their drinking water. The result was a stark drop in the number of cases. The medical experts of the day had defeated yet another deadly disease. People rejoiced. Fifty years later, though, on the other side of the Atlantic, it came back with a vengeance. As epidemics grew in community after community, a steady stream of victims was rushed to hospitals. Men, women, children. As always, especially children. That's from 1955, a public service announcement by the March of Dimes. It's filled with images of children wearing leg braces and people lying inside iron lungs. It warns people of a disease, the same paralytic disease that British doctors thought they had beaten. But now it had a name, and that name was polio. Medical experts preached a combination of sanitation and separation. Deserted beaches became a sign of the crippler's presence. No swimmers or boaters where crowds would normally be in summertime. A children's playground with not a child in sight. It's not hard to imagine those empty playgrounds. We've seen them ourselves in the era of COVID-19. In fact, we've approached the latest pandemic in much the same way people responded to polio. 
In Wisconsin, theaters closed. In Massachusetts, people even feared to go to shopping centers, leaving a few lonely cars where normally there would be hundreds. It was as though people had shut themselves up in their houses, trying to hide from an unseen and deadly enemy. But with polio, it didn't work. I want to go back to that moment in the 1890s when the British thought they had polio beat and look at it with the benefit of what we now know about the disease. So they thought the disease was spread through poor sanitation. That was their assumption, and their assumption was correct. Polio is not spread directly person to person. It's spread via fecal-oral transmission. So if human waste gets into the water system and people drink it, they get sick. So they implemented better sanitation and transmission went down. So their solution did work. But why then did polio come roaring back half a century later? Well, it's because sandwiched between their correct assumption and their correct solution, there was a mistake. What they didn't know back then is that there are two stages to the polio infection. In the first, mild stage, the infection stays in the digestive system and doesn't attack the nerves. Most babies are able to fight this off because they have maternal immunity. That's the antibodies they get either in the womb or through breastfeeding. Now, if you're exposed to polio later in childhood or as an adult, you're prone to the second, more aggressive stage of the disease. That's where it gets into your central nervous system, and that leads to paralysis and death. But here's the critical point. Exposure to that first stage via maternal antibodies, the one that doesn't really make you sick, that gives you long-term immunity against polio. A person who gets the maternal version of the virus as a baby is immune to the deadly version later in life. So, the unforeseen consequence of better hygiene and sanitation at the end of the 1800s was that all the babies in clean surroundings stopped encountering the infection in this safe way, via maternal immunity. So those babies, growing up in their new clean era, failed to develop any kind of immunity. So when they encountered the disease later in life, they weren't protected. So yes, the better sanitation worked, and hey, better sanitation is always a good idea, but what we didn't know is that living in cleaner areas was robbing babies of the chance to acquire their own immunity. That short-term solution didn't work in the long term. Once that process was understood correctly, researchers made a vaccine, and that safely gave everyone immunity. Just a quick aside here, because I know there are a small number of people who think that somehow getting immunity the natural way is better than getting it from a vaccine, but honestly, it is not. With a vaccine, you're getting an inactive version of the virus or some part of the virus in a way that is far, far, far safer than actually getting the disease. I just want to make that clear. Trying to get immunity by purposely getting the illness itself is the opposite of a smart strategy. I mean, Think of it this way. You could inoculate babies against polio by exposing them to fecally contaminated water. That's what happened in Victorian England. But is that really what you want to do? Anyway, that's a different podcast for a different day. Let me get back to this. When the public health officials of England announced that they had ended the polio epidemic by cleaning the streets, they were engaging unknowingly in a psychological process called belief bias. Here's belief bias in a nutshell. Dogs have wet noses. Elliot, who's sitting on my lap right now, has a wet nose. 
Therefore, Elliot is a dog. Now, both of those initial statements are true. Dogs do have wet noses, and Elliot does have a wet nose. And the conclusion is also true. Elliot is, in fact, a dog. He's a 13-year-old Boston Terrier, and he's gorgeous. But that doesn't mean the logic of my argument holds up. Elliot could have been a six-year-old kid with a runny nose. He would have had a wet nose, but he wouldn't have been a dog. And this is a problem that often comes up with experimental design. Sometimes your assumptions, your observations, your conclusions, everything line up perfectly, even though there's a flaw in your argument. You can still get the right answer, but for the wrong reason. And if that happens, it'll haunt you down the line. I want to bring in Dr. Wayne Lott here. He's the founding researcher behind SIMAR. Dr. Lott understands this idea of a flawed assumption or a flawed argument leading to an invalid result so well that he literally has a recurring nightmare about it. It starts with him finding out that when he was in high school, he failed math. I had apparently missed taking the final exam, and because I didn't have that, my high school certificate was invalid, and therefore my undergraduate degree was invalid, and therefore my master's and PhD were invalid, and therefore my postdoc was invalid, and therefore my assistant professorship on up was invalid. The simple thing was that you don't have your high school, none of your rest of your life is validated, you gotta go back. <laughs> okay, so Wayne graduated from high school 56 years ago, so I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has run out on that, assuming he even did miss the exam. So I'm going to assume that his subsequent degrees are fine. But let's play Freud here for a second and maybe consider the idea that Dr. Lott's recurring dream isn't really about high school. Maybe it's a metaphor about his current work. If you don't want your conclusion or your solution to be undermined by a single bad piece of data or a single bad assumption you made back in the day, you can't build your ideas like a tower of blocks, each stacked on top of one another. So Dr. Lott says the solution is to develop your ideas as a bunch of circles instead. That's a concept that I refer to as looping. Looping theory is a conceptual way of organizing your thoughts and your concepts around a scientific area. You start off with an observation and a knowledge background. You come up with a hypothesis. At that moment, you're starting a new point in a logic loop. You design your protocol, you do your experiments, you get results. That loops back now on that starting point line. Each time you do an experiment to test a hypothesis, you create a new loop. If it doesn't loop back, you don't learn something, that's a failure. That's just shooting off out in space. So it has to loop back. Your next experiment might be a completely separate circle. That's fine, but eventually you want those circles to intersect. And the more intersections you can get in your loops, the stronger the structure becomes, the more illumination you have. And so you get this three-dimensional image in your mind of all of these ideas that are looping around. And when you design your experiments, you design so that they cut across as many of those loops as you possibly can. The initial experiments test your simple, self-contained assumptions. Does having more horses lead to more manure? Does closing schools stop the spread of polio? Does Elliot the Boston Terrier have a wet nose? But answering those doesn't mean you understand the whole process. You need to come up with experiments that cross multiple circles of knowledge. And that's why my protocols tend to get fairly complex, that in one experiment, I may be trying to cut across three or four different lines simultaneously. And if you can, if you can design your experiments so that you can cut across several of these logic lines, 
You've got a logic loop now that's really strong. Breaking the chain in one part isn't going to destroy the whole package. It's basically like the traditional scientific method, but it's rendered in 3D. One more connection between the horse poop story and the polio story. People wanted horses for transportation, but the pollution they produced, aka manure, made the city unlivable. The gasoline-powered car is better, but it's not perfect because there's still pollution. Well, it's the same with British efforts to use sanitation to prevent polio. That got us part of the way there, but it took a vaccine to eradicate the disease. When you get to diabetes, insulin was a huge step forward. It stopped people from falling into comas and dying. But it didn't cure them. So maybe for that, we need a new approach. Thanks for indulging me on that one. It's a fun way to look at the whole thinking like a scientist idea we started this series with. Speaking of this series, our next episode is the last one in the first season. So it's going to be a bit different. We're going to be looking for the blip. You remember when Marie Curie had proven the existence of radium but hadn't yet isolated that one-tenth of a gram? Or remember when Urbain Le Verrier said, I know Neptune is at this location, but no one had been able to visually see it yet? Well, that's basically where Saimar is right now. They've shown that this hormone called Hiss is present. They've shown that in rats, triggering the parasympathetic nerves in the liver gets their muscles to pull more glucose out of the bloodstream, reversing the effects of type 2 diabetes. And they've created a synthetic version of Hiss that stimulates the same activity. But, and this is a big but, they haven't yet produced a bowl of it, or a vial, or whatever you put a hormone in to keep it fresh. I don't know, Tupperware? We'll find out. So stay tuned for episode 10, Seeing the Blip. It'll come out, well, when they see the blip. <laughs> I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on this and every other episode of Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. Oh, one last thing. The whole horse manure in the city problem wasn't just a New York thing. It's been a problem for a long time. In ancient Rome, Julius Caesar was so annoyed by the noise, congestion, and filth that he banned horse-drawn carriages for the first 10 hours of every day. So that meant pedestrians could enjoy the city in safety from sunrise until early evening. But then two hours before sunset, anyone with an old mare in a wagon or a pair of thoroughbreds in a chariot would take to the streets to enjoy their brief window of mobility. It was pure anarchy. Imagine all these delivery drivers in a mad dash to get their work done before the sky went dark. Pandemonium. Hundreds of people racing around, children jumping out of the way, all for fear of the onslaught of horses and, of course, of the rising tide of manure that came up behind them. 